Welcome to Diversity and Inclusion On Air's podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So today's show um, has, uh, is a kind of a bit of a do-over for us. We're really excited that our guests agreed to kind of come back on and do this show. This is our show um, devoted to issues related to learning disabilities and neurocognitive difference within the profession and specifically within academic veterinary medicine. So um, we have three guests and I'm delighted that they are joining us. We have Dr. Christy Orr from uh, Texas A&M University, uh, Regina Carey from the, let me make sure I get this right, the Learning Disabilities Association of Michigan and Dr. Daryl Steele from Michigan State University. Hi everyone. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to give you each, before we dive into um, our many, many questions, I want to give you each an opportunity to tell us a little bit about kind of how you got here and what you do, um, where you are, and why don't uh, we start with you, Daryl? Okay, sure. Um, my, again, I'm Daryl Steele. Um, I am a learning disability specialist at the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities here at uh, Michigan State University. Um, been here at this um, location um, for just about six years now um, and have done this similar work in the past at uh, Southern Illinois University. Um, so quite a bit of experience uh, working with individuals with uh, learning disabilities and ADHD are the primary areas in which I've been focusing. So that's me. Great. All right. Christy, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what you do at uh, Texas A&M? Sure, so I am the Director of Disability Services here at A&M. I've been here for 18 years, so a lot of change has happened over those 18 years since we've been here. A lot of growth and, and different disabilities, different ways of doing things. Um, I'm also the President-elect of AHEAD, which is the Association on Higher Education and Disability. So it's the professional organization for people who do what I do. Um, and also, just a little side note, is that my dad is a veterinarian, a retired veterinarian, so um, I was the contact for our vet school for many years until we started, until um, I stopped taking students individually. And so that's also my connection with that. Awesome, bonus. <laughs> <laughs> and Regina, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi everybody, I'm Regina Carey and my background is special education. I've been doing this work since I was a senior in high school, really, so 30 years and my husband is a veterinarian, so my life has been veterinary medicine as I followed him through his schooling and professional development. And I launched my own business, Carry On, which focuses on personal and professional coaching for individuals with invisible disabilities. And I have expanded that to women empowerment. So it's really a branch of everything that I've done as a part of the Learning Disabilities Association, and I'm also involved at the national level. Great. Thank you all, and thank you all again for joining us today. So let's dive in. Um, so the first question um, is, what exactly are uh, neurocognitive 
differences? Like what, what is that? We hear some terms like neurotypical or atypical and neurocognitive. Um, is that even the right kind of terminology? I'm going to um, toss this one to, to, to you, Regina. Why don't you tell us kind of what is the terminology for this kind of class of um, or grouping of um, difference in disability? Well, I think when, when we talk about a learning disability, we talk about that as a neurological disorder, or at least that's kind of unfortunately the language we've been using is that it's a disorder and that uh, perhaps it's, it's, we pathologize it, it needs to be fixed or cured and that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Neurocognitive disorders, diversity is about differences in brains and brain chemistry and the synapse is firing or not firing. And the frustrating thing about neurocognitive issues is that we can't see them. And so where you have someone with a physical disability, it is very easy to see what they need and attend to those needs. Whereas a neurocognitive or a learning disability can affect everything. It can affect a person's coordination, it can affect their reading, their writing, their mathematic ability, their speaking, their ability to take in information and, and write it down, the way they process things visually, auditorily, it covers the gamut. So, and no two people with a learning disability look the same. So that's another frustrating thing because you can't say, oh yeah, I've had a student like that before. No, you haven't. Mm -hmm. So what are some of, um, and Daryl, I'm going to ask you, and, and then you, Christy, to, to weigh in, what are some of the different kinds? I know that there's lots of different kinds of learning disabilities, um, but which ones do you, I guess, primarily see um, in working with vet students? And, and what are some of those kinds of struggles um, that um, these students and or professionals are kind of wrestling with as a result of some of um, these diagnoses? Sure. So with me, for students um, who I work with who fall under these categories are primarily going to the diverse or the different um, terms that you'll see are particularly a math disability or a reading disability um, and also writing. And traditionally, that's what it's been. Um, but as of late and more recently, I, you also see terms such as uh, like a nonverbal learning disability. Um, you also have students who historically have had what we've uh, identified as uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, so, again, so the reading disability or dys uh, dyslexia would um, represent some difficulties systems um, deal with struggles they deal with uh, with printed material. Um, so it could be uh, difficulty with reading comprehension. It could be um, difficulty with reading fluency, um, whether the, um, that be the speed of the reading or um, actually uh, decoding uh, the, the words. Um, so similarly, um, it could be the same way with math or in a similar way the student could be affected. Um, as Regina shared, um, a lot of times it's about the way the individual processes the information. Again, for me, it's always important to remember it's never about the individual's ability as much as it is the way the individual processes the information, the way it's being presented to that person. Um, so those are when we talk about learning disability, um, those are the areas in general um, that I will see, uh, but they affect students in uh, varying ways um, in the classroom and both in um, work settings. Um, so again, it's always, it may be in the areas of testing, it could be um, in lectures where there's material for the student to be able to read um, that may be on the um, overhead projector or 
or kind of dating myself, <laughs> but on the uh, that's being projected. Uh, so it, it just it it, um, it can affect students in varying ways. But again, as Regina shared, it's always going to be different for each individual. So while I may be seeing two students who have both coming in with documentation uh, showing a learning disability in the area of math the two students can be affected in two different ways or they may process or deal with the information um, in different ways um, so uh, yeah okay yeah, yeah so i i think i would just add i think everything daryl said is right on and um, the other thing i would add is just something that we're seeing more recently um or the last few years would be an auditory process disorder which is just basically that um, students have trouble taking the information in auditorily and processing it the way that that many people do. And so you would see that come in where a student may have difficulty being able to just listen to a lecture and then maybe take a quiz right afterwards or be able to get the notes down correctly. And so they may need some assistance with actually getting accurate notes as they actually may spend more of their time um, studying from some written so they may need actually the lecture to be able to learn the material. Um, and then the other, which we consider a different category, but I think when we're talking about these issues, it's definitely an, an invisible disability. The other thing that we see a lot, and actually is our largest um, category of, of disabilities, is um, attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. So we consider it a separate category, but I think, you know, in this conversation, it's important to remember that students who have ADHD or what some of them call ADD, um, are students that we are seeing in very large numbers. And again, it's related to processing along with being able to focus and being able to not be distracted. And it has nothing to do with their intelligence. Absolutely. 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 Actually, we were just, um, before the show started, I was sharing um, with Regina that I, there was a podcast that I was listening to this morning called Parenting in the Rain, and it was um, talking about um, how to help uh, your children who may be on the autism spectrum be successful, and, and um, the show featured Temple Grandin. Which of course she's very she's very well known in the veterinary world um, for her her work with animal behavior and um, animal production. So um, I want to kind of learn a little bit more about ADD or ADHD because I think that that um, this is something that's kind of hot news. People kind of are asking, is it that? Um, we are really seeing an increase in the incidence of, of um, attention deficit issues, or are we just really much better at diagnosing um, ADHD? Um, and, um, and kind of what does that process even for diagnosis of some of these issues, what does that process even look like? So I'm not sure who to <laughs> pitch this to, so feel free to jump in. <laughs> You know, I, I think it's a, I think both sides of that are um, important to both acknowledge, you know, is it that we're doing better or is there a higher incidence of um, ADHD? For us, I, um, we at um, MSU and the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities, we categorize both learning disabilities and ADHD together. Um, so I, I can't tell you the exact numbers between the difference uh, between uh, those that we have there are ADHD versus LD, but at the same time, that category has always been at the highest um, incidence among all of our populations uh, that we serve. Um, so in any case, though, one thing we do know is that more students are actually coming to 
college who have these uh, diagnoses. So, and that's because there's a lot of things that are in place that allow those students to be able to be successful at the high school level, then come to college and still be successful. So offices such as ours, but then also instructors and, um, and uh, resources on campus uh, that are um, more open and more ready to be able to assist students who come to a university with a disability. So now students are able to see that this is something I'm capable of doing. Whereas maybe in the past, um, that wasn't always um, it may not have always been a goal because the student may have been told that they were not college material for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Again, it wasn't because the student wasn't smart enough. It's just that the student maybe was not succeeding with the limitations or the um, barriers that have now been be better dealt with. So I think it's a combination of maybe more students. It's possible that there is higher incidence of the diagnosis, but I'm just not sure. But then at the same time, we know that these students are able to find more resources and able to really show their true ability. Um, once they do arrive on campus. And I would add, I think one thing that it's a very complex issue because along with the fact that there are, I think there are more students diagnosed appropriately that maybe were overlooked in the past, which includes often females are often not diagnosed with ADHD because they may not have had the hyperactive behavior. And so they may not have done well in class because of their inattentiveness, but that it doesn't draw the attention of professionals and so they don't necessarily get diagnosed and so that can be an issue and um, there's more awareness there's less stigma we also know unfortunately that there are people who are being diagnosed inappropriately and so there are physicians that that people can go to and they sometimes you know in student populations they find out who those are and they can go and just say i am having trouble concentrating in class i think i have adhd and the doctor will just diagnose them and give them a prescription and so that is happening and there's not a whole lot that we can do in offices like Daryl's and like mine to kind of try to really weed that out very well. Um, we can't require extensive uh, documentation for students. We do require that they do provide some sort of evidence that they have a disability because we can't do that diagnosis ourselves, but we can't require every um, student coming in to go through a very extensive psychoeducational evaluation, which would ideally be what they would do to find out for sure that it's ADHD and not something else. Um, but we can't require that because then we might be missing people who really need services. And according to the law, the amendments to the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, we really want to make sure that we're not gatekeepers and that we're not keeping people from getting services that they need. And so Offices like Daryl's and mine kind of walk this fine line of trying to make sure that we're we're getting services to students. And so that is some of what we're seeing with the ADHD diagnosis. And, and I hate to say that, I wish I could not say that, but it is true that there are some students um, who maybe are being diagnosed that don't necessarily qualify if they were to go through a thorough um, testing process. Okay. Right, and the bottom line though really is for faculty, if a student comes to you and has a visa or has a document saying that he or she requires accommodations, it is not the place of the faculty member to question the diagnosis or to, to look at somebody and say, you look perfectly normal, you got into vet school, why do you need these accommodations? That's never an appropriate thing. And and regardless of, of how they come to us or how they get to, to the vet school, the reality is it's important to work with them and help them to succeed at the highest level because they're capable of doing that. Okay. 
So uh, Regina, what does that testing, and, and each of you mentioned kind of the, the testing process for a diagnosis, specifically for ADHD, but what does, um, for folks that this is a totally kind of <laughs> new space and we talk about kind of the documentation, what does that testing process typically look like? And I recognize that some people will be diagnosed quite young, they might get caught pretty early, um, and some may get caught later stage, and I don't know if they're there's, um, you know, a, a difference in the way that those testing pieces go, but could you talk a little bit about what does that look like for people who might not be sure? Well, I wish we were in the time of the Jetsons where we could just do a body scan or something and say, yes, your brain is showing this and this is what's happening. But it is, it's really very subjective at some levels because it's in a, it's a questionnaire typically that is filled out. If a child goes into the doctor and says, I think I have this, this is my issue, the doctor is supposed to give them a, an assessment or a battery that goes to um, a questionnaire that goes to their teachers, that goes to the parents, where they fill out a multitude of, of answers to questions like, how are they, you know, how, do they pay attention when they're in school or do they have difficulty staying still? They look at extreme behaviors and really subtle behaviors. So they assess and bring that back to the doctor's office. And then if they feel the need based on the assessments to move forward, then there's psychological and educational testing. And it's, it's a long process. And it can be months before a child is or an adult is identified and gets the support they need. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of what are some of the positives um, attributes? I mean, we talk about, um, you know, we talk about these things as though they're disabilities because they're kind of not neurotypical, right? But we don't talk about um, how these things might be perceived um, for, stu for students, particularly high intellect students, that there are really maybe some kind of interesting gifts that come along with it, right? And so like Temple Grandin, for example, and um, the spatial awareness piece and kind of understanding um, um, shapes and things in a way that's very, very different, different from the neurotypical brain. So what are some of the maybe upsides, <laughs> I guess, if you will, um, for having these kinds of brain differences? You know, one of the things that you mentioned, um, the, in, the intellect of students, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we think about the students who are arrive here at undergraduate and graduate level is that these are students who were admitted to the university without the university knowing that the person had a disability mm -hmm. or a learning disability or any type of disability. So one, the person is very capable of doing the work. Um, but in addition to that person having the intellectual ability, the person also has worked really hard to be able to reach these type of outcomes. In many cases, the students who I see are students who maybe are those who stay up late, still working on projects. Um, and it's not as a, at a deficit, it's at a, a level of individual wants to have a particular outcome. That person wants to be able to do her best or his best. Um, and due to the issues related to the disability, or the differences in the way that individual deals with information, that person may, you know, need to take more breaks and may be distracted at times, but at the same time, the project gets done. 
or the work gets done. It gets done at a high level of quality. Um, one thing I like to think of, or another thing that I like to think of too, is that this person is coming with a different perspective on whatever the assignment or project may be, or their, that person's contribution to um, the group work or the, to the classroom. So because that person has a different background, different perspective, um, based on, in some cases, based on what that person has gone through um, to get to that point. So I would say that there's diversity or a unique perspective in addition to the intellect and the hard, the hard work that that person puts forth. And one other thing I would say too is that sometimes I see with uh, students who are diagnosed with ADHD, um, there's a level of um, some level of perfectionism that comes along with it. Um, and again, this is not a negative thing because a lot of times, again, the project is done well and accurate. Um, so those are things that I would see, I have seen uh, commonly. So. Mm -hmm. They're gritty. <laughs> There's a lot of grit, which, you know, certainly we see a lot of research talking about grit and and resilience um, and the ability to kind of scale these these issues. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, um, and this is probably hard to gauge, but um, Daryl and, and Christy, what would be your guesstimate, I guess, um, for the um, the percentage of, of veterinary students who discuss close and, and ask for accommodations. So for me, um, with I, as you mentioned, it's a little bit difficult. Regina and I were just talking. Uh, we don't have the control of the numbers or the um, we don't know the total number of students that are part of the uh, veterinary college or vet med, um, and that's just because you know it's, it's a separate department. I can tell you from our office, we have just under twenty or about twenty students who are registered with our office who are actually a part of that college. So, um, so I can answer it from that perspective. Okay, all right. Yeah, and I would say, I know overall university-wide, we're around 3% of the students' um, population is registered with our office, so that could be with any disability. Sure. Um, and I think it's probably mirrored pretty closely with the vet school. It may be a little bit less, so when you get to any of the professional programs or graduate school, it's probably a little bit less than that as far as that actually seek services in our registered office. Now, we know that whether it's undergrad, grad, professional school, that there are students that do not seek services that could, um, which could be for a variety of reasons. Some are very positive. You know, if they are getting everything they need and they don't need us, that's a wonderful thing. Um, sometimes it's not so positive. It's because they fear a stigma or they think it's going to somehow reflect on them when they, you know, maybe it's going to be on their transcript, something, which it is not. But sometimes people have those perceptions and they, and they worry about that. Um, when we get into those professional programs, sometimes that's even, they worry more about that, um, that they don't want their classmates to know or they don't want their instructors to know because they think that that might reflect on them when they're seeking a recommendation or, or that kind of thing. Okay. So um, could both of you tell me, and I'm imagining, and so I'll, Christy, I'll ask you to, to feel this, I'm imagining it's probably very similar at both of your institutions, um, but we, we certainly um, uh, invited pre-vets to, to join in today um, and watch the podcast. Um, so you get into vet school, yay! Mm -hmm. right? Everybody's kind of getting their letters right now, and, <laughs> and so people are pretty excited. Um, and then, oh, Okay, I've got this thing. Um, I now what? So um, they're admitted. Um, so so then what? What do they do next um, to seek uh, accommodations? 
Absolutely. So I would early in the process. So even, you know, as soon as you get your letter and you, when you decide where you're going to go, or if it's part of your deciding where you're going to go, I would contact the school. You can do a web search, you know, look on their website and put in the word disability or accommodations. And there are different names for the different offices. So sometimes that gets a little confusing, but if you search for accommodations, or disability, you should be able to find the office that's responsible for providing accommodations for students. Um, all students. Um, there are, again, there's different models, so it could be that um, your accommodations go through a, a slightly different office, but there always has to be someone who's responsible for providing accommodations, um, and that extends into vet So just because you entered vet school, those accommodations do not go away. Um, we hear funny things like, oh, it's summer and there's summer school. We didn't know you could get accommodations in summer school. Of course you can. So those accommodations are available for all classes, no matter what level, no matter when they are occurring. So I would encourage you to, to seek out that website, look at the information they have, and contact them if you need more information about how to get registered with that office to make sure that you have the accommodations that you need. If you don't know for sure if you need the accommodations or you have any questions, give them a call or go visit. Get all those, those questions answered even before you get on campus so that that way you know what to expect when you get there. Um, I would ask them questions like, um, if you need testing accommodations, where would I be doing those testing accommodations? How does that process work? Um, because it is different, you know, for us it's a little bit different in vet school than it is um, as an undergraduate in that same college because the students take the test in their, in, at the vet school because when you're in vet school, you're in class all day long and so to get to our testing center would be a little bit of a challenge um, but that may be different at different schools so I would contact them early and get those questions answered and find out what the process is typically if you had accommodations when you were an undergraduate that information that you submitted to that office whether it's a testing report or a doctor's letter typically that's going to at least get you started with what you need and then that college or university will let you know if there's something else that they want or if they have questions and um, we are responsible for interacting with every student on an individual basis. So we don't make blanket determinations. We'll wanna talk to you, meet with you, figure out what it is that you need and make sure that we're tailoring your accommodations to what your needs are. Great, thanks. Anything to add, Daryl? Sure, yep. So similarly, um, once you're admitted to the program, uh, do please do reach out to our office. Um, and um, we, we have two processes. You can call and come in, um, or so call and come in, or you can register with us online to notify us, and then we will reach out to you. Um, and that begins the conversation. Um, as I said before, I, I start as early as possible. Um, the process is not always just no process um, but start as soon as you can um, once we get everything that we need we'll meet with you and then we'll give you the letter of accommodations or and with um, our bet college we reach out directly um, to our liaison there um, so a lot of things are happening with and for the students so again though the main thing for me is to get started early reach out to us and get started early um, and even you can even reach out to us before you actually are know that you're admitted or even when you're thinking about which college you're going to go to is that helps make the decision um, based on when they learn um, the how the process will be and who they will be working with. So again, the earlier you start, the better, and the more questions you can have answered um, in a re, you know in a reasonable amount of time. So 
Okay, great. And I just um, want to make it clear for um, for students who are interested in applying to vet school that disclosure is not a part of the admissions process. Um, this is a, a completely separate process, and um, your application um, doesn't include, um, you know, a place to, <laughs> or doesn't require. It doesn't include a space for that, and it doesn't require you to disclose. Um, your application is um, is reviewed just like any other application would be. So I think that that's important for people to know. So Regina, um, you know, we've talked a lot about all of these different kinds of um, differences, um, neurocognitive differences. What are some of, I guess, the most common accommodations that that individuals um, may receive or ask for? First, I want to make sure that we have identification between a modification and an accommodation. Mm -hmm. And to modify is a bit more extreme than accommodating. So modifications means we're changing the, the language. We may be using um, different books or uh, shorter assignments, weighted grading in different areas, exams and that kind of thing. That's not what we're that's not what students are asking for at the vet school level. They're asking to be accommodated, which means they might need a, a alternative way to get the information. And we've got a system in place for uni universal design for learning, which brings in assistive technology and allows them to use Kurzweil and some of the other text-to-speech um, programs the uh, environment is important. So if you are an easily distracted person, it behooves you to take an exam or a quiz in a quiet environment. So having an alternative space or having a little bit longer to take the exam, these are typically what students are asking for, extended time, separate environment, and, and a different way to receive the information, maybe recording the lectures, that kind of thing. These are not these are not huge changes to the information. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. putting on glasses so you can see more clearly. So it allows them to access the information at a level that works with their brains. Great, great, great. So um, I'm kind of curious about what do you say? Certainly, you know. I travel to a lot of schools and folks are very supportive of students and we all love students, but I do sometimes hear a bit of pushback. Um, like, well, you know, this is the real world and we can't accommodate everyone. And maybe this really does mean that there's a, some type of deficiency. What do you, you know, what is, I guess, the appropriate <laughs> tactful response to individuals who think that these kinds of accommodations um, really limit a student's professional preparation? I think one of the things that, that we do is we, we talk more about what their concerns are. So from a faculty perspective, we don't, we don't want faculty or, or you know, vet school professionals to, be, to feel like it's us versus them. And so we definitely are all on the same team. All of us are trying to produce successful students that are gonna be, go out and be great veterinarians. So we're all in this together. And so, what we really want to do is find out what those specific concerns are. 
So if you're, you know, the most common accommodations are exactly what Regina said, extended time for exams and um, a quieter testing environment. So when you're talking about being out in the real world, I want them to tell me how, how that would play out. So when in the real world would you be in that kind of environment where having been accommodated in the past would be a problem? So in my working world, I'm never asked to sit down and take a test in a noisy room or in a room with a lot of people in a certain amount of time. I don't think I've ever been asked in 18 years to do that. So I actually do most of my work on my computer in my office or some people are in a, a cubicle. It's usually a quieter space. Um, I usually have more like days versus hours to do work. So it's me managing my time to get it done. So, you know, even more so with a veterinarian, they're mostly going to be hands-on out there doing the work. Um, we're not asking for things like extended time on a ha helping a cow ha um, have a baby. You know, that's, that's not what we're asking for. So we really try to delve into more specifically what those concerns are. And usually we can address those because there are times when an accommodation is, is not appropriate. And that's where we work together to figure that out. So like the example I just gave, you know, if, if it's surgery and you can't have extra time to be able, and I don't know all the terminology, but you know, to, to tie off an artery that's hurting or something, that's gotta be done in a timely manner. So we're not asking for extra time in that. We're talking about pen and paper tests or on the computer tests, and you're not gonna have that environment when you're out in the working world. So we really try to look at what those concerns are and then really address them. If it is something that could be a problem in the future, then we need to look at whether the accommodation is appropriate or not, or maybe we need to do something different. And that's what we look at there. So it's very much a conversation between us and the faculty and then with the student, depending on what the accommodation request is and how involved the student needs to be in that conversation. Great, thanks. Um, and, and Christy, you actually, we did get a question um, submitted and you um, really kind of touched on it when you went into <laughs> the, the cow, cow giving birth. Um, and that question was um, really the, the accommodations um, in classrooms versus clinics. And so um, are there any kinds of, of accommodations that might be that might be appropriate for clinics for this grouping of individuals um, with disabilities, um, with learning disabilities or neurocognitive disabilities. Um, certainly, there may be some other, um, you know, folks that have physical um, limitations um, in clinics that that might go about doing work differently. But um, the question really is kind of okay if testing is one of the biggest issues. Then by the time you get to the fourth year, kind of you know, what is that support? What's the support system like? Yeah, so I would say, for one thing, I just wanna point out that there's no there's no list of accommodations. And so if a student was struggling with clinicals who was in this population, we would really wanna talk to the student about what the struggles were and try to figure out if there is an accommodation that would be appropriate. So definitely don't wanna say, yes, there are, or no, there aren't. We, we would need to look at that and consider that and, and then make an, a determination. It, it is very rare for us to have accommodations in clinical settings for this population. As you indicated, there are some other populations where we do see more accommodations that we do, um, not as much usually for this, but there could be a time depending on what it is. So 
if it's related to something, if they have um, some kind of uh, note-taking component to their clinicals where they actually have to go back and process something and write something up and something along those lines, we've seen that like in vet schools, then it could be that an accommodation would be appropriate for that. And then we'd also be looking a lot at technology and whether technology would be something that would be helpful. So that way, it may be that they have a technology accommodation that they can carry with them into their professional life and they would still be able to accommodate themselves when they're done. I just asked my husband this question uh, last week. I said, are there phone apps? Are students using their phones to access information? And he said, yes, there's a lot of apps that the students use. They have their phones with them all the time to be able to get to that information quickly. But one of the, the great things about clinics, the fast pace of the clinic is sometimes really great for those students who are more hyperactive or really like the action. And the cool thing about people with diverse brains is they can be really amazing in an emergency situation. That's when their brains really turn on. So they can focus and prioritize and lead, you know, tell people this is what needs to be done and let's do this. And they're great with clients that face to face, you know, you get them, you get them in a room with people, amazing because they're really good at interacting with people. They've had to be because that's how they get that they advocate for themselves. So the clinics might really be a time for them to shine. And if there was one important uh, accommodation, I would say make sure it's that you're getting with a supervisor, whether it's your doctor, your primary doctor or a resident, that you can meet with on a more regular basis to say, hey, how am I doing? Am I, am I moving in the right direction? Am I thinking the right things? Am I saying the right things? What can I do better? So that you are continually getting that gauge during your rotation. All right, great. So, so um, I have a, I'm getting a little bit of an echo here. Um, so um, I'm gonna date myself a little bit. <laughs> And so back in the day, um, for those of us who were around in the days of the Cosby show, there was a great episode of Theo Huxtable um, being diagnosed with dyslexia um, when he uh, comes to undergrad. He fails a test and, and his parents are very dis distraught and very disappointed. And <clears throat> it turns out that he has um, dyslexia and they find all of this out and either a half hour or a two episode mm -hmm. arc. So I'm kind of, um, and for folks that were not around for the Cosby show, you can Google it. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. But um, I'm kind of curious, not just in terms of veterinary medicine, but how many students do you see kind of get to undergrad um, and kind of find themselves in that type of scenario? where they've been able to excel um, for those um, K through 12 years and then kind of find themselves um, experiencing more challenges without that the same type of structure. So it happens quite often um, under our category. So I, I can't tell you the difference between those who come who have already been diagnosed versus those who come with a new diagnosis once they arrive at MSU. Um, but it's very common for students to come and once they arrive at MSU, um, either 
now have to um, really deal with maybe what they've already thought was a disability, but still had those um, supportive um, factors going on around them, such as parents, teachers, um, siblings um, who were able to support them. And But then they get to MSU or they get to a university setting. And now when they're kind of on their own, so at least the belief there is that they're on their own, um, now the student does not have that um, that, that support around them. Um, so now that student will reach out to us. Um, so again, I don't necessarily have that number of those students, but it does happen for a great deal of students. So whereas I may register um, maybe 20 students a semester, maybe, you know, up to uh, maybe eight to nine, possibly to half those students could be students who are new. Um, who are, I'm sorry, who have newly been diagnosed or are experiencing enough difficulty where they're asking, how do I find out if I have a learning disability or ADHD? But again, a lot of those things have excelled, have done very well um, through all those um, different techniques that that student or strategies that student may have used um, to be able to be successful up until the point they get to a um, university setting. Um, and now it's just that they need more support to be able to reach that same level of accomplishment. Mm. Yeah, and I would agree. Um, I think I, I don't have numbers because we don't really keep track of those stats, but it could be as much as half and half, you know, students that were diagnosed before and then students that come in and are diagnosed and that's with all disabilities. So I mean, there are probably more students with learning disabilities that were diagnosed before than some of the other categories. Um, but for those students, you know, just exactly what Daryl said and just to remember that those students that are coming in that were not diagnosed previously, for one thing, they probably have a very high IQ, and that's part of how they've gotten through is, is they're just very bright. And then they've also probably learned how to accommodate themselves and um, just kind of through trial and error, done some different things that have worked for them. And you know that could be sometimes it's that um, their mom read their textbooks to them and they didn't ever pursue any kind of learning disability testing but that was just kind of how they did things and they didn't really think about it or they've always chosen audiobooks, you know, as a way to kind of get through, but never been officially diagnosed. Um, the other thing to note about them, whether it's, you know, even coming into vet school, some students have not been diagnosed previously. And for those students, if it's their first time to use accommodations, that's a process. So they don't necessarily know what works for them or doesn't work for them. Or when we're trying to determine how much extra time they need, they don't really know because they've never really sat down and measured how much of a test do they finish when they don't finish or or that kind of thing. So sometimes there's some adjustment in, in accommodations as we go through and really try to figure out um, what works, partly because they've not used accommodations before, partly because it's a different environment. And it may be they've always had pen and paper tests and now they have tests on the computer or different things like that. So sometimes there's a process of determining and changing accommodations as they go through. Um, and that's something that they work with our offices with, with Daryl's office and my office and other offices like that is really trying to figure out what accommodations are appropriate. And that's our job. You know, once we determine them, as Regina said, when you get a letter or a visa or whatever it is that you get from, from our office and email, um, those accommodations are determined by people who are experts in the area and really have worked to figure out what accommodations are appropriate. Great, thanks. So I, I want to switch um, the, the topic just a little bit um, as we start to wind down. Um, at AVMC, we um, are very engaged um, in issues around wellness um, <clears throat> and emotional well-being, particularly of our students um, and, and certainly professionals as a whole. Um, some of those, there's a fair amount of data that suggests that um, 
um, veterinarians may be at a um, higher risk of the incidence of suicide. Um, but I've also seen some 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 articles um, that individuals with individuals with learning disabilities may also kind of have some comorbidity issues related to um, depression and anxiety in particular, um, and perhaps some other issues as well. And and I guess I, I kind of just want to touch on this a little bit about um, maybe um, um, Regina, you can kind of walk me through some of this, but. Um, you know, how do we find ways of making sure that we provide kind of some 360 support for um, these individuals who may um, be struggling with not just this um, in a classroom setting, but some other um, general well-being issues as well? I'm so glad you talked about this. I was just going to say, wait, what? A, there's comorbidity. It's not just. It's not just ever one thing and that's the that's another interesting piece of invisible disabilities i think is that people it's not inherent as to what's wrong and i think a lot of kids suffer for a long time because they think what's wrong with me what's wrong with me so we have not only the neurological issues but also depression anxiety bipolar a lot of things that can uh, traumatic post-traumatic stress there are a lot of things that come with it and we need to be sensitive to that so I know our vet school here at Michigan State University has got an on-site psychologist somebody who works with the students and it's important for them to know that these resources exist and in the crazy schedule that is vet school it is difficult to find time to make that a priority because your mental health has to be priority. Or, you know, if you don't get that need met to feel loved and accepted and healthy, you're not going to be able to think in that higher order skill set like Maslow's triangle. So remembering that we need to make sure that students know that these services are available, that they that there is time in their curriculum for breaks and movement and to get you know, with the animals, I think being with the animals is really healthy for, for the students too. And that's why, uh, you know, they want those early first and second years to get in with on the clinics to be able to see the animals. But that is a very, that needs to be a high priority in, in order to change the, the overall health of the, of the students. Daryl and Christy, do you ever find, um, you know, I guess, how often do you end up having to also make kind of referrals to campus counseling uh, services? Um, do you suggest that to students um, for additional support? Or, um, you know, does how does that work? It is often um, a referral that we will make um, when students are dealing with any, it can be something the student outright says is a mental health issue, such as I've, I've been diagnosed with depression before, but the student's not seeking services related to that, or even anxiety, or it could be even something happened back at home that does not necessarily pertain to what's going on on campus, but maybe uh, the loss of a parent back at home. Um, and still having to be here at school or trying to make, stay at school or what have you. 
Um, so we will make those referrals. It does happen uh, quite often. And, and, you know, along with what Regina was sharing too, one of the things that is important for me to always remind students, or at least to keep in mind when I think about students, is that a lot of times the word disability is so scary for students. And, and for all those reasons that were discussed earlier, the students will um, shy away from the services that will actually identify them as possibly having a disability or a, an additional disability. So the student may say, yeah, I have a learning disability and I've learned to be able to cope and deal with that. But then now to have to add an additional uh, learning or disability, such as what may be called a psychiatric or mental health disability, that can push the student away from services sometimes. So again, it's, we try to support. Um, there's a conversation right now, you know, like um, how do we handle that in terms of the referrals? Do we just make the referrals? Do we walk students that over um, to the counseling center um, when that becomes necessary? Um, so all of those, uh, all of that comes into play, but yes, that's one resource. And then any other resources, whether it be um, other campus organizations or if it's a mentor or someone on campus that the person feels comfortable with or an instructor that the student has worked with in the past that she or he felt that they can always, that person could always go to. Um, so, and any other support groups that may be available on campus, whether that be uh, whether related to the um, to the school or the college they're a part of, or even just something um, that's a, just something a good place for a student to be able to unwind. So, any type of resources that we can make those referrals, we we will when it's uh, when it becomes necessary. So. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And real quick, I just want to add also that I think that it's important for the vet schools to look at the climate that they are providing. So yes, it's good to have counselors and we have that too and referrals and all of that. But at vet school can be a very competitive environment. And I think that it's important to look at what they can do to educate their faculty and their staff about disability issues and also mental health issues. And then also the other students because sometimes the students can be not very supportive of each other. And I think anything they can do to try to improve, improve the climate as far as any issues, I mean, not even just for students with disabilities and mental health, but just the stress level that's there, I think that is really important for them to address. Great, thank you. So as we wind down, I've got <clears throat> a question for um, each of you to kind of um, ponder and uh, give some, some sage wisdom as we wrap up. What advice would you give to professors or professionals working with individuals who have learning um, or neurocognitive differences, learning uh, differences, um, or any of these kind of types of conditions? Um, and what advice would you give to those students who um, are in vet school um, with, with these uh, conditions? So... I'll start. Who wants to go first? Yeah. I'll go first. Okay, so because then I'm then I'm out of the way, I get to say the easy one. <laughs> For both groups, my big thing, because I work in the disability services office, is make sure you use your resources. So that's what our job is. Daryl's job, my job, everyone like me. This is what we do. We go to professional development. We learn about this. We've worked with students. We know what those individual students need. You know, we and for students. We know what other students have experienced. And so I think the most important thing is just to connect with the office that's a resource for you and make sure that for students, you're talking about what your needs are. Let us know, you know, everything so that we can make sure that we're considering what to do as far as accommodating you and we can walk you through that process. Um, and then for faculty and staff, we're a resource for you too. So I really wanna make sure that you know, if you get that letter and you don't know what that means or you, 
you have questions that rather than go back and you know kind of drill the student although it's good to talk to the student if it's if that's helpful we don't want to drill the student or make them feel um, like they've got to explain themselves to you that you can always call the office that's produced that letter and ask um, and we'll provide the information as appropriate and we'll you know we're on the same team you know all of us student faculty and staff are all wanting student success so that's important to keep in mind Daryl? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I definitely have to echo um, what Christy just said. You know, um, we are a resource and that's what we're here for. Uh, so with, along with that, ask questions well, when questions do arise. Um, if for faculty who do not feel comfortable maybe asking certain questions of students, definitely um, raise them with us. And we, are, we know better of what questions we can answer and what questions we cannot answer and how we should answer those questions. Uh, so definitely reach out to us. Students, uh, make use of our uh, make use of us as a resource. Your goal here is to do the best you can and to come out and become a vet. You know, so come out, do that, um, but make sure if you need the resource, use it. Um, again, I, I ask that you do not hesitate or um, shy away from using resources when they're available. Um, again, it, like the idea or the thought that an individual may have a disability sometimes may push an individual away from our office or a resource like ours, um, but um, that's what we're here for. And then there's enough students um, that demonstrate that we are necessary. So again, you belong here, you were accepted. So now it's just uh, using all the resources that are available to make sure you thrive while you're here. So. Great. And last but certainly not least, Regina. Ah, my mind is spinning. Okay, so for faculty, <laughs> you know, keep an open mind. Be creative. Stay curious with your students. Learn technology. It's not going anywhere. It's only going to get faster, better, stronger, and more widely used by everyone. So staying on top of that. If you've got a student who you know struggles or doesn't speak up, give that student a heads up the day before class and say, tomorrow we're going to be talking about this topic and I'd love to start it off by asking you this question. Could you think about it tonight and be ready tomorrow? It's a great way to help somebody shine and give them the processing time they need. Keep your expectations high. These students want to succeed. They're smart and they can. So Finally, for faculty, avoid telling a student generic, you know, you did great or good job because the student needs to know specifically what was it that I did well because I want to do it again. So be specific with your feedback. For students, you came to vet school for a reason. And I know that fitting in seems like the best way to be, but fitting in is a short-term strategy that doesn't benefit you standing out is going to benefit you so know what you do well and use that use that through all of your professional training because that's why clients are going to come to you because you stand out from the rest remember that Awesome. This has been a great show. Thank you so much, the three of you, for um, agreeing to come back and, and give us a bit of a do-over. I actually think this was even better than, than the one uh, that we attempted to do a couple of months ago. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, for our viewers, be sure to stay tuned. I'm delighted to announce that the next podcast um, will feature our deans from the British Isles, um, and we will 
will be talking um, with uh, Glasgow, Ireland, um, Edinburgh, and London. Um, I'll be recording live from sunny Naples, Florida um, on February 2nd, and the topic will be Brexit diversity in academic veterinary medicine. And so we'll be talking about um, <clears throat> how the Brexit vote from last summer may be affecting the colleges in, in uh, particularly in uh, Scotland and uh, London. So um, be sure to tune in February 2nd. And um, for now, this is the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again to our guests and uh, have a great evening.